The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. If you have your Bibles or your apps, would you open them and turn them on to the 20th chapter of Acts? My music guy's making fun of me. Uh, last hour, I know we got a little carried away up here. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but maybe it won't happen this hour. Pray for me. I won't have a job if I keep that up. So, uh, Memorial Day weekend. You know, one of the great blessings of the nation we live in is the fact that we have great freedom. I did a little research on Memorial Day. 1.2 million Americans have given their lives in war for our nation since 1776. That's a lot of folks who have uh, given their life. And so we have what we have because of, the f- because of those who are willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice. Many of you uh, have been in the military. Many of you have been in war. Many of you have comrades in arms who lost their lives. And this is a special weekend where we honor those particular folks. So let's remember our nation and thank God for the freedom that we have and the joy that we have. The last two hours, I recognized uh, World War II veterans. We've had two men who served in World War II who are still with us. Most of that's a dying generation, as you know. I'm wondering if there's anybody here that uh, is from World War II veterans. Any World War II veterans here? Would you stand so we can see who you are? None this hour. Okay. Some of you look like you're from that era, but, <laughs> but uh, what a blessing. So the, the joy, we, the flowers here from a dear friend of mine, Roy Hughes. Roy lived around the corner from us. He passed away about a month ago. The memorial service yesterday, he was a World War II vet. So uh, we're, we're grateful, grateful for the nation we live in. Amen? Amen. Uh, the next thing is uh, summertime is coming. Terry, you got the next one. And uh, with summertime, we have some uh, needs in the area of children's ministries. Uh, we have uh, from nursery through fourth grade only about 500 kids every single week that worship with us. And so we need about 125 to 50 volunteers. It reduces some during the summer months. Many of you have been on the receiving end for many, many years. You've sat here and received the word. Now it's an opportunity for you to give back to our kiddos. So uh, for the summer months, this is what we need. This is where we are. Uh, We've got one more Sunday uh, where we worship together. And then that following Sunday, uh, we need these slots filled. So prayerfully consider and uh, be be obedient to the word. Be a giver and not just a receiver. So it's an opportunity for you to give back. This morning we look at a message I've entitled, The Good Shepherd. We continue our study in Acts. The church is unfinished, and uh, Paul, the good shepherd, gathers the elders from Ephesus on the seashore uh, to deliver to them a difficult departing. So Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17, from Miletus, Paul went to Ephesus. He called to himself the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know yourselves, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the entire time, serving the Lord with humility and tears, and with trials which came upon us through the plots of the Jews. And then beginning in verse 28, he gives them a warning and a positive command. He says, be on guard for yourselves, for the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, and they will not spare the flock. From among your own selves, from among the church, men will rise who will speak perverse things and they will draw after themselves the disciples. Therefore, be on the alert. So in my Bible, I've circled be on guard in verse 28, be alert in verse 31, because it's a warning from Paul to the church leaders of Ephesus. He says, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each of you 
with tears. And then beginning in verse 36, when Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. They began to weep aloud. They embraced Paul. They repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they should see his face no more. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Paul says, I've been with you for three years. I'm leaving. We're not going to see one another this side of glory again. And it was a tearful parting, a difficult departure. Father, as we mine out this section of the word, as we seek to understand it and then apply it to our lives, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth that's found in it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Goodbyes. We've all uh, said our goodbyes, and sometimes they're rather difficult, sometimes not. Uh, this past week, there was a famous goodbye on TV as David Letterman said goodbye to his audience. And I'm not sure if you're a Letterman fan or not, but it certainly made a big splash across our nation as many have watched him, and he said goodbye. There have been some other goodbyes on TV. Here's one when Seinfeld Cruz said goodbye, famous uh, series that went off the air, and I'm probably the only person here who's never watched a single episode of Seinfeld. Uh, this was one of my favorite goodbyes. How many of you know who this guy is? A bunch of you don't know who he is. You need to read something on baseball. Lou Gehrig, the Iron Horse, New York Yankees. He set the record for most consecutive games played until Cal Ripken Jr. Baltimore Orioles came along. And uh, on this day, he had been stricken with ACLS. Is that right? That's right. Initials for ALCS, something like that. It's called Lou Gehrig's disease now. And uh, this was his tearful parting. And uh, he starts off by saying, I'm the luckiest man in the world. And uh, there were tears throughout Yankee Stadium as Lou Gehrig departed. If you're a baby boomer, maybe you remember this goodbye. Uh, who was that guy? Or who was the goodbye from and to? It was to uh, Hawkeye Pierce from B.J. Thomas. And, or B.J. not Thomas, he's a musician. <laughs> B.J. Honeycutt. B.J. Honeycutt uh, saying goodbye to Hawkeye Pierce as the helicopter lifts off. He looks back and he's just talked about his cheesy mustache and stuff and He spelled out goodbye to Hawkeye Pierce in the midst of that. Goodbyes. They're especially hard when you may not see that person again. Paul's saying, adios, we'll meet again in glory. Uh, we're, We're done. And as his ship sails off, the elders of Ephesus are on the seashore watching that ship get smaller and smaller and smaller, knowing that they're not going to see their beloved apostle again. Had to be a hard day. One of the hardest days, I I was thinking of goodbyes and I was thinking of Memorial Day and soldiers and there's no doubt one of the most difficult things that you're ever called to do is to say a goodbye to a soldier, to a husband, a wife, a son or a daughter, a mom or a dad, or a brother or sister. And so I googled up soldiers departing. Got your Kleenex ready? Watch this video. Difficult goodbyes.
difficult departures. I thought it would only be fitting this Memorial Day weekend. If, if you're one of those folks that had to depart to go to war, would you stand up? You're one who left and fought for us somewhere. Would you do that this morning? And if you are one of those that sent these folks off, would you stand with them? If you're one of those that were a son or daughter, a husband or wife, a mom or a dad, and you sent somebody off to war, would you stand with them and honor them? There we go. Look at that. Wow. Bless you and thank you. Bless you and thank you. you. You know, here's Paul. He's leaving. And those of you who stood, you know what that's like. You know what it's like to be in the foxhole with somebody and they're taken off. You know what it's like. Maybe it was through death that you experienced that. And, and that's Paul. He's on the seashore with the elders of Ephesus. And he says, uh, this is our last time together. So Paul, the good shepherd, is saying goodbye to these elders. Well, he, he actually does it in a farewell speech. It's, it's quite an interesting farewell speech. He reminds them of his past faithfulness. He reminds them of where he's been and what he's accomplished in their midst. And he says in verse 18, he says, You know, from the first day we came to Asia, I was with you the whole time. And I served the Lord with humility, with tears and trials, even though plots from the Jews came upon us. And I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And we taught publicly and we taught house to house, soundly testifying to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's farewell is a reminder to them that he has faithfully preached the gospel of Jesus Christ in spite of opposition and in spite of persecution. He says, I want you to remember when I came to you and when we were together, we had all these things happen to us and he had. Paul had spent nights in jail. Paul had been run out of town. They'd been rioting where Paul went. And he says, you remember in the midst of that that I was faithful. And he said, we have been in the foxhole of persecution together. We have fought this battle together. And for those of you that have uh, been at arms with others, you, you know the camaraderie that's formed when you fight together. Those of us who've done ministry together know the camaraderie that comes from being in ministry together. Those of you who've done mission trips know the bond that's built between others on that trip. Those of you who are in community groups and small groups, you know the bond that is built as you live life together. And they've lived life together for three years. Paul says, for three years we've been together. And now I'm leaving and we're not going to see one another. And he says, I remind you that I have been faithful through all of that. When I read this, I see the life of a faithful man. And he's talking to folks he'd spend time with day after day, week after week, month after month for three years. And he's saying to them, I, I want you to know, remember that I've been faithful to do that. I've gone house to house. I've gone uh, place to place publicly. And we have not backed off in spite of resistance to the gospel. And so when I read that, what I see is a life of a man who's speaking to people who know him very well, who spent days with him, weeks with him, months with him, years with him. You've seen me live life. I have been faithful, and there's no objection to that. So, so as I'm thinking through this passage in my office this week and studying God's word, I'm thinking, Gary, can that be said of you? Those that see you every day, those that work with you in the office every day, those that uh, you live with, your wife and your kids and your mom and dad who live with you and, and the young college girl that's living with us now, can they see a faithful man? Do they see that? Is your faithfulness evident? Because the apostle Paul said, hey, you're with me for three years. You, you know what it was like. You, you, you know I've been faithful to do that. And so 
I ask you that same question. Those closest to you say, that man is faithful. He lives out what he says. That woman, she is faithful. That young girl, she's faithful. They not only talk, but they walk the way they talk. They accomplish and do. They live a Christ-like life. That's what we're talking about here. They, they live a Christ-like life. Their, their example is exactly what they're saying with their words. John Calvin put it this way. He said, the first duty of the Christian is to make the invisible kingdom visible. That's what Paul did. He, he, he made the invisible kingdom of Christ visible by the way he lived his life among these folks for three years. And so when he was leaving, their tears of departure, not only because a friend they're not going to see, but their tears of departure, we have a man who's lived well in our midst. We have a man who, who has faithfully lived out what he's been preaching to us. We have a man who testified of Christ and of his goodness, and he didn't hesitate to preach in spite of persecution being around the corner all the time. Well, those closest to you, your husband, your wife, your sons, your daughters, your grandkids, your mom, your dad, your neighbors, your coworkers, where they say, that's a faithful man. That's a godly woman. She walks with Christ and honors what she says. Chuck Swindoll puts it this way about our Christ-likeness. He says, when your life becomes perceptibly different, when your reactions are quite opposite to the situation it seems to call for, when your activities can no longer be explained by your personality, that's when others sit up and take notice. In the eyes of the world, it's not our relationship with Jesus that counts. It's our resemblance to Jesus. Do you hear that? He's saying it's when you look like Christ, that's when others notice it. When circumstances are going awry, but you say, as for me and my house, we're still going to serve the Lord. When you go in the midst of trials, you're still going to cling to the Savior and honor the Savior and walk with the Savior. In the midst of circumstances that look like certain defeat, there's no more powerful testimony than the joy produced by faith. One of the great privileges I have as a pastor is being with people in their last days of life. And I do, I call it a privilege because I see that very thing. I see a testimony that, that produces joy through faith. People facing death and still joyful is an anomaly. That should not happen unless you know the Savior. Unless you know there's a certain and fixed hope of the resurrection and your hope being with him forever. And, and he says the way we live our lives is what attracts the world. And I agree with that. And Paul's saying to, to the Ephesian elders, he said, I have been with you. You've seen me live my life. I have been faithful among you. And then he describes this present situation in verses 22 through 27. He says, and now behold, I am bound in spirit. The word bound there means tied up. He says, I am tied up in my spirit. My spirit is, is tied up. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. He, he's on his way to Jerusalem to deliver an offering that's been taken up for the church in Jerusalem. They were in need. There'd been a famine. There were people who had been living together, so they had financial need. He says, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. And look at the end of verse 22, not knowing what will happen to me there. He says, I'm headed to Jerusalem. I've got to do it. I'm bound up in my spirit. It's something I've got to do. My spirit is leading me that way. The Holy Spirit has led him that way. And he says, but when I go there, I, 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 I don't know what's going to happen. There may be trouble lurking around every corner. In fact, he, he, he comments on that next verse, except the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Paul says, you know, I'm going to Jerusalem. And the one thing I can tell you for sure is that there's going to be pain and suffering and torture. He said, but I'm gone. And we want to wave our hands. Don't go, Paul. Don't go. 
I mean, if you know there's trouble lurking around every corner and you're going to be beat up and, and, and beaten, why would you go? Because the Spirit of God has led me there. You know, that flies in the face of a theology that's purported today. There's a theology today that says if you really walk with Christ, you don't have sin in your life, you're going to be prosperous. You're not going to have suffering, you're not going to have pain. And I look at that and say, that's a bunch of hooey. I mean, that's crazy. Two weeks ago, when I last preached, or three weeks ago, actually, I quoted to you this verse from 1 Peter chapter 4. Dear friends, don't be surprised at that fire ordeal that's come upon you to test you. We shouldn't go, son of a gun, I can't believe this trial is coming. Trials are going to happen in life. James 1 says, uh, when you encounter various trials, not if you encounter, but when you encounter them, he says, don't be surprised as though some strange thing is happening to you. Don't be surprised when struggles come. Don't be surprised when, when there are issues in life that, that, that cause you to be perplexed. But rejoice that you can participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed with his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed for the Spirit of God rests upon you. He says, don't be surprised when troubles come. Jesus puts it this way in John 15. If the world hated me, it's going to hate you. He says, don't be surprised if you follow after me, if you can be treated like I was treated. Now, the theology that's out there says uh, you should have no trials, you should have no problems, and I would say that's no truth. Some of you question your faith right now because you're suffering. You're in a difficult marriage. Get health issues. Unemployed or underemployed. There's not enough money to make it through the month. And you've lived a faithful life, and you're saying, God, what gives? What gives? It's not a result of any sin on your part. You've been faithful. You've walked with Christ. Maybe your arms are empty from fertility. Some disease racks your Bible. Maybe you're a single who's stuck at home every weekend because you're going to remain pure. And, And you begin to question, God, isn't this enough? I mean, God, you've heaped all this on me. See, the real question is, where will you turn in the midst of that adversity? When trials come, when troubles come, and they will, how will you respond? Dave Dravecki was a pitcher for the San Francisco Giants. If you're a baseball fan, you remember Dravecki's story. He was stricken with cancer and uh, had to have surgery. He was a left-hander, had to have surgery, had to have radiation, and after being sidelined for a while, he actually came back. And really in one of the most grotesque scenes in sports, scenes in sports history, Dravecki is on the mound pitching. As he pitches, his arm breaks. His arm breaks right there. Dravecki is a strong believer. In fact, we got to meet him once at uh, Jim Dobson's Focus on the Family in Colorado Springs. He wrote a book called Reflections. In that book, he was asked by someone about suffering. Why he didn't give up on God? How could he endure suffering? How did he pray about suffering? He writes these words. My observations in America, we, are, we as Christians pray for the burden of suffering to be lifted from our backs. But most of the rest of the world, Christians pray for stronger backs so they can bear their suffering. Do you hear the difference? Is there anything wrong with praying for suffering to be lifted? No, but when's the last time you prayed, God, give me a stronger back to endure what I'm faced with? When's the last time you drew a line in the sand and said, for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord? 
Like Job, when, when he was afflicted with all this loss, he says, even though my Redeemer slays me, yet I will trust him. When trials and struggles and suffering come your way, how do you respond? How do you respond? <clears throat> Does it drive you to the Savior or away from the Savior? And then look at verse 24. How can Paul do this? How can he know if he's gone from city to city and afflictions await him and persecution awaits him? How can he do that? He says in verse 24, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. Paul says, I realize that this life of mine, it's not about me. In fact, I love what he says next. In order that I might finish the course and the ministry that God gave me. He says, I, I'm not worried about persecution or affliction. Trouble lurks around the corner, but I'm gone there because the Spirit is leading me and I'm bound up and I'm going to do it. And, and I've got these struggles and I know it's coming, but you know, my life really doesn't matter. I just want to finish the course that God has placed me on. I look and say, wow. When you consider your life of no matter and following Christ, all that matters, that's, that's why Paul can say for me to live as Christ and die as gain in Philippians chapter 1. To, to live is Christ. If I get to live, it's him. But if I die, I get to be with him. Either way, I win. It's a win-win situation for me. <clears throat> and so Paul says, you know, I've gone these places. When I go to these places, my greatest desire is to finish well. To finish well. Told me lurking around the corner, but I want to finish well. No, here's the great news. The great news is we have a commentary on this. You see... Years later, Paul would write the very last epistle we have from him in our Bible. It's the book of 2 Timothy. Paul says in Acts to the church leaders of Ephesus, the elders, he says, I want to finish the course God has laid out for me. So then you go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, which is the last thing we have written from Paul. He's now in the twilight years of his life. The end is near. He says in verse 6 of chapter 4, I'm already being poured out a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. Time of my death is at hand. Then listen to his words. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. He, he looks at the Ephesian elders on the seashore and he says, I just want to finish the course that God has given me in life. I want to get there. And, and now all of a sudden he comes to the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4 and he says, I fought the fight. And by the way, guys, I've made it to the end of the course. I just love that. I love that Paul says, God, I want to make it to the end. I want to be faithful. I want to end well. And he does. He does. He finishes well. You know, obviously that's been on my mind for the last two and a half years. How are you going to finish? How are you going to finish? I don't know if God's going to give me three more months, three more years, or 30 more years. Actually, I hope it's not 30 more years. I don't want to be that old. Can't even, can't even add that up. 30 more years would be... Long time. That's what I told him last time. I said, you know, you live that long and, you know, you, you eat healthy. And I'd lost all this weight. I gained it all back because I'm not eating all the stuff I should eat and stuff. And I said, it's because you, you eat healthy, you live one year longer. It's a nursing home somewhere. And I don't want anything to do with that last year. So <laughs> eat whatever I want. When I was first diagnosed, this has been a quote that I loved. And I had it framed and put on my desk because I want to finish well. I hope one day, if it's 
three months, three years, or maybe 20 years from now, with a sword unsheathed and his armor in place, he went directly to see the king with a stain of battle still on his garments. That's how I want to go to glory. What about you? You want to crawl across the finish line? Or you want to go on the blaze of glory serving the Savior? How do you want to go out? Paul says, I want to finish the course. And then we get a commentary on it years later. He says, by the way, guys, I fought the good fight and I have what? Finished the course. Don't you love that? Don't you love that? Let's be honest now. Carl Bard, not Carl Barth, but Carl Bard said, though no one can go back and make a brand new start, anyone can start now and make a brand new beginning. Can't go back and redo what's done. That's past. That's history. But starting today, we can make a brand new ending. You can rewrite your epitaph. So let's be honest. For some of you, if you were taken to glory today, on the way home, you had an accident, and you're taken from glory, wouldn't be a good ending. Wouldn't be a good ending. There was a time in your life when you served Christ, you walked with Christ, you honored Christ with your life, but now you're far from him. Wouldn't be a good ending. For some of you, you're involved in sinful activity. You know you shouldn't be involved in it. If your life was taken from you today, you'd be face-to-face with the Savior. You'd be embarrassed. Be embarrassed. And so here's the opportunity, my friends. The opportunity is you can start now and make a brand new ending. Right now. For some of you, that's walking with Christ. For some of you, it's coming to know Christ personally today. Accepting him for the forgiveness of your sin so that you know you'll be with him eternally. For some of you, it's going to be making some mid-course corrections because that needs to happen in your life. In 1 John chapter 2, it says, Little children abide in him so that if he appears, you will not shrink away in shame at his coming. For some of you, you've walked with Christ in the past. You've walked with him intensely. You've honored him with your life. You've served him. You've given But no, that's not the case. My, my plea to you is you can start now and make a brand new beginning. You remember Alfred Nobel? You remember his story? I've used it before. The story of Alfred Nobel, who was an inventor of dynamite. One day he picked up the newspaper. He saw his obituary in it. In the obituary, it said, Alfred Nobel, inventor of dynamite, killed more men than, that killed more men in battle than anything else and died as a wealthy man because of it. He was horrified when he read it. What had happened is his brother had actually passed away and the paper mistakenly ran his obituary. And he decided he wanted to be remembered in a totally different way. And so he took his fortune and he invested in something called the Nobel Prizes. And so when you hear Nobel, you don't think about, maybe you think about dynamite, but you also immediately think about Nobel Peace Prizes and Nobel Literature Prize, Nobel Science Prize, because in the middle of life, he read his own epitaph and he wanted to change it. You can do that right now. You can change that. Anyone can start now and make a brand new beginning. And that's my prayer for you, that that'll happen. Paul says, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've run the race. And so Paul has uh, reminded them of his past faithfulness. He's described his present situation. And he concludes by talking about future problems, past, present, future. 
He says, in the future, I want you to do two things. First of all, he gives them a positive command. He gives them a powerful warning. The command is found mid-verse 28. He says, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased his own blood. He looks at the elder and he says, I want to remind you. He tells them positively. He says, your responsibility is to shepherd this flock. Your responsibility is to take care of this flock. Your responsibility is to feed this flock. In Ezekiel chapter 34, we find a commentary in the false shepherds of, of uh, Israel. Jot down Ezekiel 34, take a look at it later. You want to know what a shepherd's supposed to do? Here it is. It says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Woe, shepherds of Israel, you've been feeding yourselves. You should be feeding the flock. You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Woe unto you, you false teachers of Israel. And so the first responsibility of any good shepherd is to make sure that his flock is cared for, to make sure his flock is well fed. I mean, that's the responsibility. That's why the Word of God is central to everything we do from the pulpit and our classes and our small groups. It needs to be that way. We need to be fed. And now after you're fed, you do something with that which you've been fed with. And so that's why we are involved in this. He says you should be feeding the flock. He says shepherd the flock. Be on guard. Be on guard. It's a positive command. It's a positive command. Shepherd the flock. You know, the metaphor of sheep is commonly used in the Scriptures for the people of God. Christ is our chief shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He's given under shepherds to oversee local assemblies. And all of us are sheep. Now, why that analogy? Well, there are numerous reasons why. Obviously, it was an agrarian culture. They would understand the metaphor that's being used there. But also, I think we're referred to sheep because of what sheep are. My grandfather, my mom's side, my mom grew up on a farm in central Louisiana. So as a city boy, we'd go spend two weeks every summer with our grandparents. We'd go one weekend a month with our grandparents. He had horses and cows and ducks and chickens. And he always had 30 or 40 sheep on hand. And those sheep were just dumb animals. I mean, they're dumb. And, and I mean, I think one of the reasons why we're compared to sheep is because we tend to be dumb. We're easily led astray. We get dirty and we stay dirty in sin. We wander away if we're not led. Sheep are not the brightest animals. They're not the bravest animals. They're, Max Licato puts it this way. Sheep are dumb. Have you ever met a sheep trainer? <laughs> Have you ever seen sheep do tricks? You ever go to the circus and see sheep in a sideshow? They're dumb, they're defenseless, they have no fangs, they have no claws, they can't bite you, they can't outrun you. That's why you never see sheep as team mascots. You've heard Los Angeles Rams, Chicago Bulls, Seattle Seahawks, but you've never heard of the New York Lambs. Who wants to be a lamb? And he's right. I I clipped an article out of uh, Newsweek several years ago. It's a story about sheep. Uh, It occurred in a city in, in Turkey. Uh, there was a young man who was a shepherd over the sheep from 26 different families. So the sheep uh, were, were, he was a chief shepherd among several shepherds. 26 families combined their sheep and uh, these shepherds worked it together. And uh, he had 1,500 sheep, 1,500 sheep. That's a lot of sheep. And he, he, in the article, it says one of the sheep wandered off a cliff. And it's kind of like lemons, you know, lemons off the cliff. And these sheep, one went off and another went off and another went off. And a total of 1,500 sheep, actually he had 2,500 sheep, 1,500 of those 2,500 sheep went off the cliff. 450 animals died. He was interviewed. And he said, uh, the ones who jumped later were saved because the pile got higher and higher and the fall cushioned them when they fell. 
I mean, can you imagine 1,500 out of 2,500 sheep coming and all you have is a white woolly mess and then all of a sudden some of them are living. They, they go dead, they jump and there's so many down there that they, they don't even die because the pile has built up so high. Just dumb sheep, that's us. That's us. I mean, how many follow, I, we may not be jumping off cliffs. I've seen a lot of men jump off cliffs. Cliff of immorality, the cliff of pornography. The cliff of deserting your family, the cliff of making stupid decisions. I've seen women jump off cliffs. I mean, it's amazing how dumb we can be. But we do have a shepherd who loves us and cares for us and is a good shepherd. By the way, it says he purchased the church with his blood. TBC is not Gary's church, the elders' church, it's Jesus' church. Amen? Jesus' church. So you shepherd the flock by feeding them. By the way, I'll give a shout out to the young men who've been preaching. Those guys are feeding, they're studying hard, they're preaching well, they're growing in their craft, and I'm grateful for them and for their commitment to doing that. Shepherds that consume and don't serve, Peter says in First Peter chapter 5, you serve for sordid gain, you shouldn't be a shepherd. Shouldn't be a shepherd. So he moves from a positive command to a powerful from positive command to a powerful warning. Look at the warning. Verse twenty eight, be on guard, verse thirty one, be on the alert. I've circled those phrases and connected my Bible. Be on the alert for what? Be on guard for what? Be on guard because out of your own midst, savage wolves are going to come. Be on guard because from among your own cells are going to be those who draw away the disciples after false teaching. Be on the alert. Remember, for three days and three nights, or three years, I admonished you. Three days and nights, for three years, I admonished you. He says, you need to be alert because false teachers are going to come. False leaders are going to come. There's going to be a struggle in your own midst. You've got to be on guard. One of the responsibilities of the elders is to make sure that the flock is protected. To, to make sure that the flock is protected from that which is false and that which is wrong. Be on guard from false teachers. Be on guard from disunity, dissension. Be on guard for sin in the body. Be on guard. Now, you don't have to be Gestapo and go looking for stuff, but the reality of it is you need to be those who honor the Savior by looking for those who are going to lead your flock astray. Those who are going to lead your flock astray. It's a quote I don't want to use. Here we go. Powerful warning. I've used this several times. The best way to show a stick is crooked is not to argue about it or spend time denouncing it, but to lay a straight stick alongside it. It's an African proverb. Best way to show a stick is crooked is not to argue about whether or not it's crooked, not to spend time denouncing the crooked stick, but you lay a straight stick alongside it. And when you do that, it's quite evident that the stick is crooked. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Week after week, month after month, year after year, for over three decades, the truth has been preached in this pulpit and in our classes and our small groups. And our prayer is when you hear something that's crooked, you'll recognize it. Years ago, I had a pastor in our community I had lunch with, and he said, I can never do what you do. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you've got all these small groups. How do you know people leading those small groups are not groups are not teaching something that's an error? And I said, well, to be honest with you, with the number of small groups we have, at that time we had about 40, now we've got over 70, and said, you know, we cannot control everything that's done there. So we train our people, but the thing we do is we teach truth week after week after week after week. And about seven or eight years ago, something quite interesting happened. Shannon, uh, our college pastor, had taken a group of young people, college students, to Thailand. We, Dave and Donna Pasley were elders who were missionaries over there. He was one of our elders, went there, and they went to visit a church that Dave and Donna went. They had a guest speaker in that church, and the guest speaker was saying some things that uh, 
obviously were in not agreeing with what we would teach. And so as soon as the service is over, these college students huddle with Shannon. And they begin to question and say, you know, he said this, he said this, he said this. Now, how did those college students, some of us have been one year, two years, three years, four years, how did they know what they were hearing was an error? Because in college ministry, and in big church as they call it, they've seen straight stick, straight stick, straight stick, straight stick, and when the crooked stick is laid there, they recognize it. We don't have to call out names from the pulpit. I rarely mention names. I talk about prosperity gospel. I've laid a straight stick for 33 years. You can recognize who those people are. I don't have to call them by name. You read about them. You see them on TV. You see their books. And when they tell you you're sick because of your sin or your lack of faith, I hope you realize that's a crooked stick. Or when you hear somebody denounce the deity of Christ, that's a crooked stick. When you hear somebody speak of our Savior in a wrong way or talk about salvation in many ways, you say, that's a crooked stick. And you know it's a crooked stick because you're in the Word and because you hear the Word over and over and over and over again. He says, be on guard. Finally, finally, there's a tearful departure. They gather on the seashore. They weep. They embrace. They repeatedly kissed him. One of the reasons I've never left TBC is I don't want to repeatedly kiss all the elders who are part of our (laughs) group here. (laughs) And he leaves them. You know, when I look at this entire passage, what I see is one man impacting a whole group of people. I mean, he's modeling Christ. Let me say, I lived with you. You saw me. I saw you. We lived life together. And uh, it's been good. It's been good. And he impacted them by living and modeling the Savior to them. Difficult goodbye. 1991, we adopted our sister church in the Ukraine. 1992, we went there for the first time. And we didn't know if this was... uh, if we'd ever see our dear friends there again. So for that week, Bev and I stayed with Pavla and Luba Marchuk, the pastor of our uh, church, sister church, and our hearts were knit together. Pavel didn't speak any English at that time. He's pretty fluent now. And, uh, and so in that week, our hearts were really knit together. We had sent over a library and TV and video and stuff, and some of you on that trip with us. And I have a lasting picture in my mind we're in the Kiev train station. We board the train. It's a train from hell. I'm telling you, it's a filthy, dirty mess. And uh, we're getting ready to take off. And I look out the window. And there's Pavel. So I knock on the window. And he sees us. And I've got this picture in my mind of Pavel Marchuk. Train starts rolling. He puts his hand up to the window. My hand up to the window. And he's walking along. Then he's running. And he learned one word in English that week, goodbye. And so he's mouthing, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. You know, by God's grace, it's become a two and a half decade relationship now. Many of you have been there. But when you leave somebody you love and you don't know if you're going to see them again, it's not easy. And Paul says, I'm leaving. I love you. Goodbye. My prayer is you'll be found faithful to the very end, finishing well. And when you say goodbye, 
folks will say, there goes a faithful woman. There goes a faithful man. Amen? We're late. You can go home.